0: Looks like a small class today. Boy, the weather keep everybody away? Usually it's the nice weather. We don't want to come, we want to stay out in the nice weather. No. Or they're working on their homework. Okay. Um, assignments due today. Homework assignment. Homework number two. Uh, if you've got it, you can turn it in after class. If you're turning in a paper copy, if you're submitting it on D2L, uh, any time by 6 o'clock tomorrow is good for full credit. And that is due today. There's also two quizzes if you haven't taken them already, quiz two on chapters two and three uh, will be available through six o'clock tomorrow and the first of the iTunes quizzes will also be due, be available through six o'clock tomorrow. Um, Other thing coming up this week will be the first article review due the end of the week. That will be due on Friday slash Saturday morning. So you have that and again I showed you last time on Friday there are examples up on D2L. If you want to go look at sample articles you're welcome to choose one of those and there's a couple uh, written articles that are up there. And then as you're finishing one homework i got another for you, yay, I know. I was nice this time, the homework is due on the 27th, homework 3, but because the next unit is a rather long one. Um, have only got five questions. It only covers that one section. So there's only five questions this time. So it will still be worth 15 points. That means each question is worth double. So they're worth a little bit more, but you've only got five of them, five of them to do. There you go. What? You can stick them on, you can stick them right after class. Just give them to me after class is good. 1 2 there you go. You. So there's, there's only five questions. This is all based on the planets. Our next unit will be on the planets. That homework covers five chapters. So it covers chapters four through eight, is our next unit on the planets. Um, don't feel like when you're reading, you have to read all those chapters in detail. Chapters four through eight are, for any other purposes, the equivalent of one chapter. So spend as much time reading and skimming them accordingly. Um, I have my PowerPoints up there. My PowerPoints take slides from each chapter, but only a section of them. So you may want to look at the slides and see what I'm emphasizing, and then go back and look at those. Don't feel like you have to go through and read in detail all five chapters. But that is our next unit is on the planets, and it does cover a a big section. Big, big section there. But in terms of like quizzes, when we have our next exam, our next exam will be chapters 3, 4 through 8, and 9. So 1 3rd chapter 3, 1 3rd chapters 4 through 8, and 1 3rd chapter 9. So you don't want to put extra emphasis. even though it's five chapters, you don't want to put any extra emphasis on it. It's just one unit's worth of the course. All right, so that's what's coming up. And I'll have some other stuff. I'll have the next few things listed for you tomorrow. Next um, tomorrow on Wednesday, when we come back, when I can erase off all the stuff that's due today. So, any questions on that before we go on? No, no, no. All right. Picture of the day for today. It is a rotating moon, and someone already asked. And yes, that is our moon. Doesn't look anything like our moon, does it? Right. If you ever looked out at the moon, that looks absolutely nothing like it. That's because what you're seeing at this point is actually the far side of the moon, the part of the moon that we normally cannot see. So no matter when you look at the moon, you never see this side. And in fact, there's only a handful of people who have been able to actually see it live. You know, The handful of astronauts who have actually flown to the moon and around it and actually been able to see that section live. But this is a set of images actually taken by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a satellite in orbit around the moon taking images of it, so getting lots of images of the far side, getting lots of images of the near side. And what you're going to see when I play the video here, it takes about 20 seconds to play it, is the actual putting the moon into a rotation, actually watching the rotation of the moon. So getting to see the entirety of the moon as we go through. So something we never really see here from Earth, we don't see the Earth, the moon appearing to rotate. It does, just very slowly. It rotates exactly as fast as it goes around the Earth. So it always keeps one side facing towards us. That's why we never ever get to see this portion. So this should look a little more normal when it starts out. You see all the darker maria there? Darker seas, uh, seas of lava. Then as it rotates around, you come to what we were looking at at the beginning. Far side of the moon, much less uh, maria. Few little small scattered ones there and coming back around again to a little more familiar section of the moon. So, again, just seeing the moon rotate there is not something we get to see every day. You don't watch the moon rotate. We have, for as long as people have been looking at the moon, been seeing one side of it. We see about, actually about 60% of the moon. We can see little bits around the corners depending on how it's, tilted in the exact orientations. There are some things that let us see a little ways around the edges. But for the most part, that far side of the moon has been invisible to us since since we've been looking at the moon until the first satellites were able to go up and go around the moon and send back some images of that. And in fact, the first ones were in the very late 1950s that we actually got our first images of the moon. So only a little over 50 years ago that we've actually seen the far side of the moon. Questions? Questions? It's a good question. Why are there so many more? Is a good, good question. Uh, it could be something to do with the fact that that side is towards the Earth, and the tidal forces on the Earth made it much easier to crack the crust and allow lava to flow through. So something different between the near and the far side. That maybe there is a thicker crust on the far side or in a thinner crust on the near side of the moon. But it, it's a very good question that I can't say we have a definitive answer for yet. It's very definite that it occurs. We can see that, yeah, there aren't many there. There's a few little ones. There's some, definitely was some flooding here. Maybe over there, getting closer to that side. Down on the bottom, it looks a little bit, you start to see little bits and pieces, but nothing like what we see on the near side. So some di- some difference in the structure of the moon may be perhaps due to the Earth's gravity pulling on it, and because it always keeps one side facing towards us, that side is you know constantly under the influence of the Earth's gravity a little bit stronger than the other side. Perhaps it kept it a little bit thinner, allowed more material to flow out and fill that material, fill that, fill those uh, big basins with lava. But a good question, but not something I can give you a definitive definitive answer for. Question. Yeah. um I've heard about little lights that flash on the surface of the moon. Little lights that flash. They're, they're I don't know, I, I have an astronomy thing on my okay. website, and it just, they flash up and we have no idea what they are, but hmm. when it's dark, they flash, so they're trying to figure out what that is. I didn't know if they yeah. had any idea. Yeah, Not nothing that I'm familiar with, no, it be interesting. Yeah, some, some sort of reaction in the rocks, perhaps, or right. some sort you of... Right, re- you that there's no, of course there's no atmosphere on the moon. Right. So they don't have any idea what these things are, but yeah. I didn't know the last you. Interesting. No, I, honestly, I don't, I don't know. I couldn't tell you any more about that one. Anything else? No? We're ready to go back to telescopes. Alrighty. And we were looking at, last time, we were looking at the powers of a telescope. So I'd given you last time, I believe, we had the light gathering power. how much light the the telescope is able to collect. So the more light good thing, the more light you can collect, the fainter objects you're able to see. We saw resolving power, which is what we're looking at now. How fine of a detail can you see? Now, resolving power, light gathering power depended on the diameter of the telescope, squared, so a twice as big a telescope gives you four times the light gathering power. Resolving power depended on one over the diameter, but you want a small number for the resolving power, that means you're seeing more detail. So a big telescope, twice as big, gives you twice as good resolving power. So a bigger telescope is helping you with both of these, definitely helping you with this one. Helping you with this one in a theoretical sense but one of the problems with most telescopes is what I'm showing you here is the atmosphere, the Earth's atmosphere. So as you get the light coming through, the light starts coming off, it's coming all nice and straight but when it hits the Earth's atmosphere there's little turbulence, there's things moving and by the time it makes its way down through there It's now wiggling and jiggling all over the place by the time it gets to the telescope. So that means that when you're looking at the telescope at this very distant star, sometimes the star appears to be here, the next instant it might be here, and then here, and then here, and all over. That's what causes the twinkling when you go out and look at a star, because it's not staying in exactly the same spot. You can't see it jumping. It's not jumping all over the sky. This is one arc second across. The moon is about 30 arc minutes or 1,800 arc seconds across, so it's a very small jump, but it's enough that you can see it as the twinkling. When you see this is when you actually start taking images of the sky. So if you put a camera out there and open up the shutter and let it start collecting light, well, it's going to not see this star right here where perhaps it is, because sometimes it's there, but sometimes because of the atmosphere, it's going to look like it's here and here. And when you do this billions of times, you're going to end up getting a whole big disk here as to where the star appear, the light appears to be coming out. You're essentially smearing out what should be this little tiny point into this very big disk. So what you should see theoretically is a little tiny point there. What you're actually going to see because of the Earth's atmosphere is a big disk. Now, not gigantic, but big enough that it's smearing out a lot of the details. When you're looking for detail in a galaxy, you're smudging, it, you're smudging it all together. When you're looking for details in clusters of stars, they're all getting blurred together and we can't see the difference. The more turbulent the atmosphere gets, the worse this becomes. So you might get a very turbulent atmosphere and instead of getting one arc second, you might be getting a diameter of two arc seconds, twice as big as this. Smearing out as more and more. Now that doesn't happen if you get a telescope up above the atmosphere. If you can get a telescope up above the atmosphere, then you don't have to worry about what we call seeing. So astronomer calls seeing is how clear the atmosphere is, how stable it is. Perfect, perfect seeing would be essentially no atmosphere. The light would continue to come straight through. That's what you'd see if you were on the moon. That's what the Hubble Space Telescope would see. It's up above the Earth's atmosphere. It would have perfect seeing. You would get everything coming to this one point. All the light would come to that one point. And now if there was a star here and a star here on Earth they'd be all blurred together because this one would have a big di- big disk. This one would have a big disk around it. They all get blurred together. You can't see the detail. Whereas the space telescope you'll see one star there and one star there and you'll get another star. If there's a star close to it you'll be able to see that kind of detail. Something that you cannot see from the surface of the earth. Does seeing get better as you say go up higher in elevation? As you go up higher in elevation typically as a general rule yes but it's more the a- how stable the atmosphere is. So if you get to a high, evolu- high elevation with an unstable atmosphere it's not going to help you. But typically yes because you're getting above a lot of the atmosphere. Would be a very good one, top of a mountain. Also, because you're above a lot of the atmosphere. If you keep the atmosphere down below you, that helps. Some at time, from time to time, yeah, you can get storms coming through and you can get turbulence up there. It's better than a storm on the surface of the earth. You know, try to observe from here. Okay, it's raining right now. That doesn't help very much. But even when it's clear, you know, you get a nice hazy, hazy summer night where the atmosphere is just moving around. The stars seem to twinkle a lot more. That's going to make it a lot worse for seeing details. You want to get above as much of that atmosphere as you can. And in fact, that's what I'm talking about here on the next slide. What are our solutions? How do we get around this problem of seeing? Because we should be able to theoretically get incredible resolving powers. We're talking telescope mirrors that are 10 and 12 meters across. They should be a lot better than the Hubble Space Telescope. But they're not. They actually don't do near as well in some cases because of the problem of the atmosphere. So some of the things that we can do, telescopes on mountaintops, Mauna Kea being a good one where there's a lot of telescopes, Uh, Kitt Peak down in Arizona is another one, Uh, down in Chile there's a number of telescopes, up on mountains, especially in desert areas. So areas where it's very dry and where the atmosphere is much calmer. So that's one. The second one is putting the telescopes out in space. So let's put a telescope out in space. That gets it above the atmosphere completely. You never have to worry about it. Difficulty, what? something goes wrong with it, it's not an easy fix, right? You can't just go up there and repair repair the telescope. If it's not something you can control from the Earth and adjust, but something needs to be replaced, as has been done with Hubble Space Telescope, the instruments on it now, are not the ones it started with 23 years ago. The instruments were set up to be able to be taken out and replaced so it has completely different instruments. And you know, we know what technology does in 20 years. So the instruments that it was launched with, it's got much better instruments on it than it would have otherwise, than it would otherwise have had. So putting telescopes out in space is a good, is a good thing as well. And finally, there's another thing that is done now, which is active optics. And this is a way that we actually use, adjust the mirror. So we actually deform the mirror. So instead of a nice smooth mirror made to that perfect shape, we now adjust the mirror to take into account gravity. If it's getting tilted, we can pull it and keep keep it in the correct shape. We can also take into account the atmosphere. So there are telescopes that will take into account the conditions in the atmosphere and try to distort the mirror to match them and invert them, and therefore give you a much clearer image. So take something that looks like this, looking through the atmosphere, and end up getting something that looks like this. Look at all the stars there, whereas here you're only getting this one very bright one, all blurred out, maybe hints of something over here, maybe some, something over there. but. When you look at it and you're able to use things like uh, active optics, you can then smear, unsmear the image before you even take it. So you can actually deform your mirror. Your mirror will have all these little irregularities in it that exactly match the atmosphere. One of the ways they do that is there are some of the telescopes that will actually send a laser beam out. So they will actually send a laser beam out and excite atoms in the upper atmosphere, then observe that. So if you create this artificial star, you know, little bright thing in the atmosphere, you can then know its properties. You know exactly what it should look like, right? When it comes, when the light comes back down and it's deformed and it's not perfect, you can then turn that around and say, okay, now I know exactly what the atmosphere is like. Because I know what this star should have looked like, this one I made. And I can then turn that around and adjust the telescopes in, you know, real time computer control just to change the shape of that mirror when you're observing your actual object. So it can actually take out a lot of the atmospheric effects. Is it perfect? Certainly not. But it gets you much closer to your theoretical resolving power without the disadvantage of having to put a telescope out in space. Well, let me see one other thing here. Yep, that is the end of this one. I didn't put the actual. Since I told you there were three, I better give you the third one, even though I didn't put it on the slides there. There is a third power of a telescope which is the magnifying power. These two are the most important. This one is the least, least important of the three. That's sort of why I didn't include it on the slides. But I did want to at least mention it. Magnifying power is essentially how much you magnify your image. right? That's the one that lots of telescopes like to advertise, especially the cheaper telescopes. You know, A real good telescope will talk about light gathering power or resolving power how faint objects you can see, what kind of detail you can see in them. The cheaper ones are advertising magnifying power. Magnifying power is very easy to increase. All you have to do is change the eyepiece. You get a more powerful eyepiece, you can increase the magnifying power. So it's very easy to change, but it also isn't isn't helpful unless you have these two powers pretty good. If you're not gathering a lot of light, and you're trying to look at a faint object. So you see some faint object there. OK, you want to, you want to enlarge that. Well, if I take this object and enlarge it to this big, it's going to get fainter. right? I've got some amount of light here. If I make it bigger, all I'm doing is taking that light and spreading it out. So if you're looking at a very faint object and you try to magnify it 20 times, 50 times more, all that light that you had, it's still the same amount of light, just instead of being concentrated here, it's now spread out. So you're going to have a bigger object, but it's going to be a lot fainter. Eventually, if you try to magnify it too much, if you don't have enough light coming in, you're not going to be able to even see it. So the magnifying doesn't matter in any case. In terms of resolving power, how much detail you can see? Well, if you're not seeing a lot of detail, if it's all blurred out, I can magnify a blurry image. I get a big blurry image. It's not going to, the the magnifying power isn't going to help you see anything any better. It will if you have a lot of light gathering power and resolving power, but just going for magnifying power doesn't help you. You can magnify things a thousand times, but you're going to get a very blurry, very, very faint image and not be able to see too much. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that one to you, Uh, but it's certainly the least important least important of the three, if you're ever looking to buy a telescope, you don't want to go just by magnifying power, that's easy enough to change later. If you've got good quality and you see that you, I've got enough, I'm looking at something bright, I'm looking at the moon, Well, heck, you can magnify the moon a lot, you've got a lot of light coming in. So you can magnify the moon. If you're looking at some of the brighter pal- planets, you can do that. But if you're trying to magnify a very faint nebula or something that you may have seen, then You really don't want to magnify it, it's better off looking at it as a smaller, more concentrated image. All right, let me see here. We have, let me pause. All right, so let's get back to, but yeah, I like like to show, I like to show that one, so. So now we can jump on to another astronomy. We looked at optical telescopes, that's what we concentrated on. Now the last two units of this chapter are talking about other other types of telescopes. We'll spend one unit on radio astronomy, which is radio telescopes. That was the second type to be developed after optical telescopes. Radio telescopes have been around for almost not quite a hundred years yet. Really the 1930s they started. Didn't really kick in a lot until after World War II. But a radio telescope is just like, a, it's like a big reflecting telescope except it uses a radio dish here. So a big giant dish here, looks like a satellite dish, that collects the radio waves coming from the sky. All of these use a prime focus. So all of them use the radiation coming straight in, bouncing up, and there is a receiver up at the top that collects the light, that collects the light, the radio light coming from the sky. So it comes down, bounces up to the focus, and then that goes down to a control room, which may be down below the telescope, or even more likely, it's wired right over to a building. Uh, nearby. And that's where the actual observations are, are done. Uh, They're nice in that, remember how you talked about how a telescope had to be perfectly smooth? Well, a telescope has to be perfectly smooth relative to the wavelengths it's trying to observe. So if you're trying to observe something that is hundreds of nanometers in wavelength, typical visible light, your telescope has to be smooth to hundreds of nanometers. So I have to have a nice perfectly smooth surface. But if you're trying to observe things that are centimeters, several centimeters in size, then your surface only has to be smooth to a couple centimeters. So you can actually have little pits or holes in this and it's still perfectly smooth. Looks like it to the radiation that's coming in. So if you're trying to observe radiation that's, say, 21 centimeters in length, 21 centimeters is about between my fingers there, right? So if I had little things, centimeter size holes in this, as far as the radiation is concerned, it's perfectly smooth still. It doesn't see those gaps because its radiation, its wavelength is so much larger. And in fact, you'll see some radio telescopes that actually are a mesh. You You don't need the whole thing filled out. You only need it to be smooth relative to that wavelength. So it's less sensitive to any imperfections in it, which is why things like you know a satellite dish can work, even if it's got all sorts of gunk on it and little bits here and there. It still will work just fine because it doesn't have to, it only has to be smooth relative to the radiation that it's collecting, not necessarily to our eyes. So this is an example of one radio telescope. Here's another one. Here's the largest one in existence. Uh, this is the 300 meter telescope. 300 meters, a well, meters about a yard, so a little over 300 yards or three football fields across. So pretty big telescope there. So yeah, fit, you know, fit one, two, three football fields across there and still have plenty of space along the sides. Um, this is in uh, Puerto Rico, Arecibo in Puerto Rico. And it is, the difference about this telescope is to the previous one. The previous one you saw it looked like a satellite dish. You could turn it and point to anything you wanted to. This one you can't. This one is actually hollowed into the side, into a valley, between some mountains there. So what's supporting this 300 meter dish? The earth. It's a big bowl hollowed out in the earth and set up to be the telescope. So the telescope is actually supported on the earth, meaning it can only look pretty much straight up. So anything that passes pretty close to overhead, it's got a range of a, few, of a 10 or 20 degrees that it can see to either side of straight up. But if it doesn't pass close to overhead from this location, you can't see anything. But it has the advantage of having about three times the size of any other radio telescope, any other single radio telescope, meaning that you get, right, light gathering power. This applies to any telescope. You've got three times the light gather or three times the size, nine times the light gathering power of any other radio telescope that exists. So very, very large telescope. They are much larger than anything, right? No optical telescope, 300 meters. Imagine a 300-meter lens or mirror trying to, turn, trying to move that around would be very difficult to be able to do. Where's that telescope at? This one? Yeah, is that an 80 this is in Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah it's hollowed out in, hollowed out into the valley of the mountain of the mountains there, 300, 300 meters across. And you have people walking on it actually here. For you know inspections, you can see they've got like almost snowshoe type things. Don't use too often in Puerto Rico probably, but that's just to keep them from damaging it anymore. You don't want to put, if you're trying to observe things that are centimeters, you don't want to put dents in it that are you know foot size. That'll actually cause a lot of damage. They have those to keep from damaging the surface. And this would be the receiver up at the top, kind of zoomed in up there. That's the receiver up here that detects it and again then the radiation goes down to control buildings down there. Nobody is actually up there observing and there isn't much to see. You need computer processing to see anything in radio waves anyway. You need to take the, take the radio waves and convert them into an image, something that you can see on a computer. Now, this means a couple of things. Using radio astronomy gives us a couple things. If you recall, I gave you last time, this actually, I put one over the diameter, it actually is the wavelength. Divided by the diameter. So what does that mean for the resolving power of a radio telescope? We got really, really big telescopes. But you have really, really long wavelengths. And in fact, in terms of how many times bigger the telescope is, you might have telescopes that are 300 meters. As compared to a three-meter telescope, 300 meters, it's hundred times bigger telescope. But guess what? The wavelengths are more than hundred times longer, thousands, millions of times longer. So resolution for radio astronomy is, gets, gets, starts out very hor- horrible. Starts out horrible. You get very little resolving power because the wavelengths are so long, so many times longer than that of visible light. So you would need telescopes the diameter of the Earth to get really good resolution. We'll talk about those in a minute. They actually exist. Uh, but what are some of the advantage, v- advantages? Well, first of all, you can observe 24 hours a day. right? The sky is bright during the day. It is invisible light. Sky is the same at night or day in radio waves. So same amount of radio waves coming all the time. So it's not like the sky gets really bright in radio during the day and we have to turn it off. We have to turn off the telescope. A radio telescope can observe 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Also, weather like this, if you're an optical astronomer and this is your day to observe, guess what? You're out of luck. Too bad, you know. Hopefully you got a few days observing and hopefully you get a few clear nights. It's, it's a gamble every time you go to observe. You don't know what the weather is going to be like. You can't tell for sure what you're going to get. Advantage of radio astronomy is that clouds don't matter, rain doesn't matter, snow doesn't matter. So we could go out, radio telescopes that are working right now are still observing. So they can still, they're still able to see. With the one exception I will make that if you're getting a thunderstorm, that, that's when it will cause trouble. If you get electrical discharges in the atmosphere and you're trying to look through that, that interferes and causes interference in the radio signal. But typical clouds, rain, you know, snow, does not matter at all you can actually observe right through you can observe right through that so pretty much 24 hours a day 7 days a week the amount of downtime a radio telescope has is limited to the thunderstorms that come through pretty much so much much better observing than if you were trying to observe up here you know harrisburg during the summer how long are the nights you know 7 8 hours long when it's dark when it's really dark and how many of those are cloudy how many are rainy that you can't observe at all optically. So you only get a tiny fraction of that. Radio astronomers have that advantage. The other thing is that you're looking at a completely different wavelength. You can learn about completely different things about a galaxy, for example. There's an image of a galaxy here too, actually two images. There's a visible galaxy. This is a galaxy Centaurus A. It's got a big sort of elliptical type galaxy that you see here in the whitish portion. Ignore the multicolored portions for right now. And it's got this big dust band going through it. Very unusual galaxy. We'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to our section on galaxies. That's what you see when you look at the optical portion of the spectrum. So, it's a curious galaxy. It's a peculiar galaxy in that typically the galaxies of this general type don't have big dust bands going through them. So it's very unusual in that effect. If we look at it in the radio part of the spectrum, we don't see any of this, that's all invisible. We do see some kind of source here and we see jets of material streaming out. If we only looked at that in one or the other, we don't get a complete set of information. We don't completely understand it because there's a lot going on in this galaxy. So only looking at it in the optical, Well, we know there's something strange there, because that's not the way a typical galaxy like that looks. When we look at it in the radio, we see something else. When we put the two together, we can then actually get a better picture and a better understanding of what is happening with this galaxy. Is there a black hole in that galaxy? There is a black hole at the center of that galaxy. That's actually what these jets of material are coming down to. So there's a a black hole here, which is collecting material, spiraling in material, and then spewing out some of that material before it gets into the black hole, like to qualify that, then gets pushed out in, ter- in terms of jets. So it gets pushed out of the galaxy. Now, of course, this is galaxy size. You think of these jets things. Jets are you know, thousands, tens of thousands, 100,000 light years across. So they're not just little tiny you know, sprays of water coming out or anything. They're actually gigantic sprays of material that stretch across tens of thousands of light years. So tremendous in size by comparison to anything we normally think about. But yeah, that is what's going, down, going on down there. There is a, a black hole down at the center and probably this is actually two galaxies colliding. One, a big elliptical galaxy here and another galaxy more like our own that does have a lot of gas. And they're probably in the process of colliding. Colliding galaxies feed that black hole and cause it to emit more energy than it otherwise would. But we'll come back to a lot of that uh, later on. Now, I said the resolution was really bad for radio telescopes. So what we use is interferometry. That is a method to combine radio signals from telescopes. So what's pictured here is the VLA, the Very Large Array, about as good as the Very Large Telescope for names, right? It's a very large array of radio telescopes. It's got 27 radio telescopes out in the desert of New Mexico. And you see some of them here. You see one arm of the array here. You should see one, two, three. You should see nine on each arm. So there's nine telescopes going out this way. There'd be nine going out this way. You don't see all of them. And there'd be nine going out this way. So set up in kind of a Y shape uh, in the desert there. And what they can do is they can point them all at the same object, observe it, and find out, you know, find out more about it. And what happens is in terms of resolving power, the diameter of the telescope, the effective diameter of this telescope, is the size of the two most widely separated telescopes in the array. So if you put them tens of kilometers apart, you all of a sudden have a 10 kilometer radio telescope. Put them 20 kilometers apart, you've got a 20 kilometer radio telescope. In terms of resolving power, how much detail it can see. In terms of light gathering power, it doesn't work that way. You've got this giant telescope, but you've got all these big holes in it. Well, resolving power doesn't see those holes. The light gathering power does. So in terms of how much more light it can gather, well, if you count one of these telescopes, the whole array can gather 27 times the amount of light that one of them could. You've got 27 telescopes. So one of these gathers so much light, together they can gather 27 times that amount of light. So helps the, helps the light gathering power. But not near as much as it helps the resolving power. Because it, it really helps the resolving power. And what this means is that an array about this size matches about the resolution that optical astronomers could get at the time. Optical astronomers' resolution has gotten much better with the uh, active optics that we talked about. So this matched about at the time what kind of resolution we could actually get. But as far as you can separate those dishes, that's what you can get. So this is actually, put it up here for you, VLA, Very Large Array. And yes, they are very inventively named, as with the Very Large Telescope. Now, did I do another? Okay. How interferometry works is, if you look at two different telescopes, We talked about waves and how they could be in phase or out of phase. Well, depending on how you're looking at the two telescopes, looking at the object with the two telescopes, you might get in one case, the lowercase b here, the waves might be coming in in step, meaning the crests come in together and the troughs come in together. They're adding up and you get constructive interference. They're making it bigger, making a bigger wave. This telescope a little bit further away, not very, you know, maybe couple hundred meters, a kilometer, they might be coming in completely out of phase. Crest comes in on one, the trough comes in on the other. Trough comes in on this one, crest comes in on the other. So, then they're canceling each other. Individually that doesn't tell us a whole lot, but when we can put that information in for all these different telescopes, we can then reconstruct what the image would be like and get this very high resolving power. So it's a matter of how the phases work, how well the waves add up. Either add together very well, cancel, cancel almost completely or something in between. Doesn't have to perfectly add up. It could be slightly out of step but not completely out of step. So you could have a crest coming in a little bit off the crest. And you see that when you look at that for 27 different telescopes you can get a lot of information about the detail, a lot of detail about that and really helps the resolving power. So what we've done is, the wavelengths haven't changed, but our diameter has gotten many, many times bigger. So instead of trying to build a telescope that's 10 kilometers, radio telescope 10 kilometers across, imagine the construction needs going into trying to go do something like that. Well, we can make a bunch of little telescopes. That's easy. You know, big satellite dishes. Uh, Typically, maybe about, what, about 25 meters across. So, you know, big. They're still big but not gigantic by any comparison. But they're easy to build and that gives us this really good resolving power and actually can match what the optical astronomers are able to see. And I think, yep, I did do that right. That means that we can get images here of the same galaxy. These are two images taken of the same galaxy. One in visible light and one in radio waves. In this case, they match up pretty closely. Unlike the one we looked at earlier, where they were quite, quite different. You can actually see some details here. There's a central portion of it. There's spiral arms coming out. You see a lot of spiral arm detail in the um, optical part of the spectrum. Not near as much. You're only tracing little bits and pieces here in the radio. But you can kind of match them up. The resolution is about the same, which is good. Because then you're able to better compare the images. If the resolutions aren't as good, You might have five radio sources or five optical sources within where your radio source is. Which one is it? You can't tell. When you get the resolutions comparable, it's very good. Then you can actually begin to compare these images. I'm sorry? You can find out when it's, an activity, when it's active. The sun it does emit radio waves. So if you're pointing a telescope and you get too close to the sun, you'll get interference as well. So You can't point really too close. If the sun's there, you know, you've got a big band around it where you really can't look. But if you could detect that, you know, how far you can go tells you how really how active the sun is. When the sun emits more radio waves, you've got to stay a little further away from it. When the sun emitting less, then you really don't have. Then you can get a little bit closer. Still, you're going to have to avoid that section right around the sun. You're not going to be able to see that. But certainly you do detect the sun in radio waves and it will emit more or less at different times of its cycle. I think we mentioned last time maybe I talked about interferometry and visible light. It can be done. It's something astronomers are working on now. But they're not, the technology is not yet there to be able to do it on the scale that radio astronomers are doing it. And that's because the wavelengths are so much shorter. And when you have these big waves that I can actually draw on the board to scale exactly, you can measure the phase differences a lot better. When you have those waves where you've got billions of oscillations in every millimeter, it gets a lot harder to be able to tell you know, what, the, what the shifts are. So the technology is not quite there for the real large, for really big arrays. But they are working on some smaller arrays. And trying to do this. Now that would certainly help optical astronomy get much better resolution as well. So even better, even better than we get, than we're getting with the current active optics. All right, and then the last few slides here are just going through the different astronomies. So we'll get a start on a couple of these and then I'll finish them up on, on Wednesday. But this should have covered everything you need for any of the homework or the quizzes already. Um, infrared radiation. Here's two images, exactly the same images. If I haven't pointed out already these little bars that are down at the bottom, you'll see these below every image. This just says what part of the spectrum you're looking at. In this case you're looking at visible light. So you're looking at this nebula, you see a lot of gas there, invisible light. If I look at that same part of the sky, identical portion, identical scale resolution, now I'm looking at it instead in the infrared Infrared is very good at looking through the dust. So the dust seems to disappear. And we are then able to look through that. And now all of a sudden, instead of a big cloud of dust here with some stars maybe buried in it, all those stars start to pop out. So we get to see a lot more looking at things in the radio, in the radio, in the infrared, and later in the ultraviolet, x-ray and gamma-ray parts of the spectrum. We get to a different view that we couldn't see visibly. Visible light is blocked out by that dust But the infrared is is able to penetrate it. The nice thing about infrared radiation is that it doesn't require any new technology. It will work with typical optical telescopes, mirrors, lenses, will work just fine for infrared as well, as long as you're either up above the atmosphere, so none of it is absorbed, or at a high enough and dry enough location that you can actually see the infrared radiation that doesn't get absorbed. We also can put satellites in space to observe infrared. Some of the infrared gets through can be observed from the earth, Others, the other parts of the spectrum do not. So a satellite out in space, shown here, would be one way to observe parts of that, that spectrum. Other ways to get a high up above are balloons, airplanes, if you get a real high flying airplane, you can actually mount an infrared telescope on that. Again, the whole idea is you want to get up above most of the atmosphere and especially the water vapor in the atmosphere. Water is extremely efficient at absorbing infrared radiation. So if you can get up above that, launch your telescope up in a balloon, launch your telescope into space through an se- airplane, you can get up above most of, that, most of that water vapor and then are able to better see what is, what is going on out in space. Ultraviolet. This is an example of some ultraviolet images. There's a supernova remnant here and a galaxy. Um, What we're looking at in ultraviolet images, we're seeing some of the hotter objects. A supernova remnant is is bits of the exploded star expanding out into space, very high energy. Well, it takes high energies and high temperatures to produce ultraviolet radiation. We also see If you look at this galaxy, and we'll look at more later on, but the the outer arms are much more exaggerated when we look at it in ultraviolet. That's because these stars that make up the spiral arms emit a lot of ultraviolet radiation. They're very young, hot stars that emit a lot of ultraviolet. Now ultraviolet is not near as good. You You can use mirrors. You can't use lenses. Ultraviolet radiation doesn't penetrate through glass. So you can't really use a lens, you couldn't use a refracting telescope, but you could use a standard reflecting telescope. And in fact the Hubble Space Telescope can observe to some extent in the infrared and in the ultraviolet as well. And I'm going to go ahead and pause there, let me just see what I've got. What's next? Yeah, we'll stop and we'll do x-rays and gamma rays, the only thing I haven't really talked about yet, so I'll come up and talk about those on Wednesday and then we'll go on and jump into chapters 4 through 8 and start talking about the planets. Any questions? If you have homeworks, I'll be happy to take them now. If you came in later and did not get a homework assignment for the next one, I do have those up here as well. So, I'll see everyone Wednesday.